5 as we continue through this uh, book and the Sermon on the Mount in particular. We want to look at blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And to see here in a moment, this is probably in some ways the pinnacle of the Beatitudes. I'll explain that in a moment. At least uh, it's one way of looking at it. Uh, we saw last week, though, as we dealt with those who uh, are merciful, and if they are, they shall receive mercy. We saw that a heart touched by the mercy of God must show mercy. If we are to be like Christ, God is a merciful God. And so if we are children of God, remember children, sons in the Bible generally speaks of acting like the Father. Sometimes it means being begotten begotten by a father, but in the New Testament it generally means uh, to act like the father, to act like your father. So if, if the father is merciful, then his people should be merciful. Christians must also be merciful in order that their relationship with the Lord should be as it would be as it should be. Uh, if you are not forgiving, then you, the Lord says, will not forgive your sins. We know that not in a salvific way, but uh, there, there will be a loss of fellowship. Those who don't exhibit merciful hearts, the Bible is very clear here in our text, will not enter into glory or not in the kingdom of God. And then we also finish, though, as we always, we must often, because it is very easy for people who know a little bit of scripture to run with it. And so as we'll see, you know, the Bible says we are to be a forgiving people, so they think that we've got to forgive under every and all circumstances indiscriminately. No, mercy is not always indiscriminate. There are times when one cannot show mercy, and in doing that, show the greatest love for somebody. And those are things I think we'll see as we continue through just this chapter alone, this, this Sermon on the Mount. But actually, three chapters here. So I think there is a sense in which, as I said, this is can be looked at as the high point of the Beatitudes in this way because the blessing is the greatest. In other words, it's, it's like they all kind of lead up to here. Uh, we shall see God if we have a pure heart, if we are pure in heart. Um, yeah, we will find comfort. We will be shown mercy. We shall, uh, uh, you know, uh, as the early ones say, um, we will, will have the kingdom of God. All these things, but all these things are to get us to the point where we shall see God because there can be no higher pinnacle in existence than to stand before the glory of God in full fellowship and not be consumed, right? So it's kind of, in a sense, this, this uh, is the pinnacle of what it, uh, the best it can get. So blessed are the pure in heart, because if you are, you shall see God. We want to try to explain that. We call that the beatific vision. We dealt much with that in Revelation chapter 22. All other blessings are a result of or will culminate in that. That's the point. That's the goal that we have. That's the goal of our salvation. Not just to be, you know, not so we don't go to hell someday. That's part of it, but it is so that we might see God, to see the, the, the greatest glory that there could possibly be, a glory that will take us eternity to be able to experience and never reach into its depths. 
but Jesus is, and we want to always remind ourselves too, as we go through these Beatitudes, that Jesus is not saying that if we purify our hearts, we shall be saved or get into the kingdom, but that the kingdom is filled and only filled with those who have pure hearts. And so we'll, today we want to also look at how you get the pure heart. That's, uh, I'll give you a big hint. When I had Jeff read that in, in Ezekiel 36. That's that regenerative word that given us a new heart, uh, a heart taken away the heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh. That's, that's a reference, I think, to this new heart that here is referred to as a pure heart. That's a, a description of it. it. It'll have effect. And so we want to see how you get your pure heart. But also, what does it mean to have a pure heart? What's the effects of a pure heart? And it will produce something. You know, when I say I've had a change of heart about something, then that means I've looked, I'm going to look at something differently. Right? And if I say I have a change of heart, but I'm still going to re- live the same way and, and treat it the same way I've always done it, whatever the subject might be, then no one's going to take it seriously. And I think the Bible is very clear about that, that if we claim to have a new heart, and if we, in fact, truly do have a new heart, a pure heart, it is going to lead to a pure life. There's going to be effects, because you see things differently, right? So we never want to run too far away, no matter what else I might say today. That is always going to be the case, and it's going to undergird everything that we talk about, especially when we're talking about the attributes of a Christian. What does it mean to be saved? And so all, all of these things, Jesus will go on to show it, that will have certain attributes, will result in lives that are different than they were before we were saved. But the thing this verse concentrates on is that Jesus is firstly concerned with the inner man. What maybe separates this from all the others is that it gets to the heart of this matter that Jesus will deal with later, that the uh, we have a... Jesus, God doesn't just want us to conform outwardly to some set of rules. He changes our heart that so that everything we do is now a result of our love for Him. And Jesus points this out. You gotta have a pure heart. I don't, He said, I don't want you to have a pure life. That, that will come. But if you don't have a pure heart, you, it's impossible to have a pure life. Psalm 73, 1 says that truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Even in the Old Testament, we, we see this. We'll look at some verses in the Old Testament in a moment. That this was, this is not something new. This always has been. But the problem is, is that Israel, because they were not circumcised in their heart, but only outwardly, um, they were not a people who were able to be pure in heart and in life. Now, there was that remnant who, who were given, regenerated, obviously. But that's why we need a new covenant so that everybody in this kingdom will have a new heart. There aren't some who do and some that don't. If you're in the kingdom, if you're in the church, and I mean in the in the true church, the, the universal church, if you will, uh, you you are regenerated. You don't, the church is not mixed like that. The kingdom of God only has believers. That's one thing that separates them from the Presbyterian, from the covenant theologian, who believe that unsaved kids are in the new covenant. Well, again, if you go back and you read um, 
Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and Romans or Hebrews chapter 8 or in quotes from Hebrews or Jeremiah 31. No, there's there's only those who are saved who are in the, in this new covenant. Well, anyway, I don't want to get too far into some of that stuff. But Israel, for the most part, never really seemed to get this. You know, God told them, circumcise your hearts, you wicked people. And of course, you can't do it. You 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 know, I can't tell my heart. Okay, I think today I'm I'm going to start being pure. Right now, if you're Pelagian. Uh, you think that, well, man, every, every man has the ability to do right, right? They're born with that ability. Well, the Bible teaches that we're totally depraved. That the, the new heart has got to come from without. We've got to be born from above, as we read in John chapter 3, right? So, uh, that's, that was the failure of the old covenant. It could not change the heart. It was a law that said, do this, but they couldn't do it. And so, your genes, that is, uh, who, you're, who you're born from and law-keeping is not what brings about favor from God. God wants to see little images of his beloved son walking around on earth, not little hypocrites. He doesn't want a people, he doesn't want people who follow rules but really don't love him. He wants people that love him and the rest will take care of itself. So what is it to have a pure heart? Well, there's a, Number of things you want to see here, but a couple of things that are important. First of all, is to love the Lord above all else. In other words, we're talking about a pure heart, a real, a truly pure heart, one that knows that has been open to the glories of God, who has come to Christ for salvation, who is right with God. You love the Lord above all else, and then secondly, living that that's going to produce living for the purpose of God to have a single-minded devotion. A pure heart means you don't have a divided heart. You don't say, well, I, you know, on Sundays I love the Lord, but on Mondays I love my job, and on Saturdays I love to fool around with the world. No. You, you're tempted in those areas, but your heart is given over to Christ. It's, in other words, a pure heart is a non-hypocritical heart. I'm not saying, but when we say pure heart, we don't mean we have a perfect heart. It means that we have a non-hypocritical heart. We love Jesus more than this world. Up here, Matthew 23, 25, is where we learn here that Jesus' goal was not to reform people so that they could act better, but to transform them into lovers of God. Where he gets on the scribes and Pharisees by saying, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. So, you know, there's some churches that kind of, they tend to be, that we've got all these rules that we want you to follow. We expect you to look a certain way that we'll... You know, you, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't do anything that we have considered to be wrong, or we don't want any part of it, you got to, you know, and all this. And they, they tend to emphasize that. The outward man. Now, it's not to say that the Bible doesn't have certain, you know, doesn't lay out our du- duty in details. You know, I understand that, right? There are, the, the, there is a law of God. We'll, we'll deal with that certainly in this Sermon on the Mount. But what we try to do here, the way we want to come about it, I believe is the biblical way, where we 
we want people to behave and to do right, but what the, the way to do that is not to lay out a list of things to do and then try to, you know, beat, browbeat you into doing them. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel to you. I'm going to keep to reveal Christ to you, to remind you of all that you have in Christ, to remind you of the love of God, the mercy of God. And as you grow in your love for Christ, your outer man will take care of itself. Because you're not going to do what your heart doesn't want it to, to yourself to do. You're right. You, you do. Your actions are motivated by your heart. So as we grow in our love, we will conform to the image of Christ. And so there's a, there's a, there's a way because it's a lot of what goes, you know, it's called Christianity is really more about just obey, obedience and law keeping and what we call legalism. And they just kind of get in the cart before the horse. And so Jesus, he'll do it a few times in this sermon, will, uh, says, wait just a minute, make sure you understand that you've got to have the heart fixed first. And then the outer man will follow. That's something we want to always keep before us. So to put it another way, an outwardly moral society is not what God is after in his redemptive plan. This he will explain later when he says that just because people aren't, for instance, killing each other doesn't mean that no one is sinning that all is good. Just because no one is committing outward murder doesn't mean that there's not a bunch of murderers running around, right? What Jesus taught was that if one gets uh, his heart fixed, his outward life will be fixed. And I think these words are some of the most relevant for our world today, even though the world probably doesn't have place any value on this. Because Jesus nowhere says that to believe the gospel or follow him will change society or will help alleviate its ills. But he does say that if you know him, and uh, in the end you see God, uh, that will be... That, that is good. That's what he talks about. He, he says, that's what, that's what I'm after, that you know me and that you know God. We'll see that in, in John chapter 17. He says, so he doesn't care about society? Well, yeah, but God doesn't look, like to look down on the world and see all the evil all around us. But the only thing that's going to change it is the gospel. The only thing that's going to change it are people getting right with God. And then society's ills will begin to take place. And, of course, we know that ultimately it's not until the Lord comes back where all that is going to be uh, like it should be. So you can see why the world would have a bit of a problem with that. Jesus says you can't solve problems while neglecting God. The world says who cares if you see God or not if the world's falling apart. But the problem is that the world is falling apart because people don't see God. Because they don't know who God is. They're not right with Him. They're, they're, we're born in enmity with God. He's not central in their lives. The essence of life is that we are struck with the awesomeness of God. That's, that's why we're created. And that sin has so blinded us and so elevated our, our own self in its place that we, that we, uh, ruin our lives because we live for ourselves. God is a point for everything. And that's what's to consume us. If we're the, the, the holier we are, the more godly we are, the more God consumes us, the more he's the reason for what we do. 
And this, and if this is the essence of a perfect life, then it should be the essence of a life on earth, even though it's hampered by sin, it, nothing's changed. We still are to be consumed with the Lord. And after the fall, of course, that became a problem. And the redemption is bring, getting us back to where we should be. And so as with the others, there is a gospel sense in which we must first be given a pure heart so that we can see God in a spiritual sense. And we know that eventually, if we have a pure heart, we shall see God in glory as well. There, there's a sense in which it begins at salvation, but will have a perfect ending. So, it's not something that we do to ourselves in order to obtain God's mercy. We've got to have it. But we also know that it's something that God must in his sovereign grace give it to us. And the religionist that, misses that point because it's trying to like, reproduce a Rembrandt, you know, a famous uh, artist. You're not a Rembrandt. So if I tell you, okay, I want, here's a Rembrandt. Right, I can show you a painting. I say, okay, I want you to reproduce that. Well, the problem is you're not a Rembrandt. You, you don't have what it takes to do that. Right? And so you don't get holy by imitating Jesus because there's, it's not in us to do that. We need a new heart. Seeing Jesus can only cause us to realize how unlike we are. Now, as Christians, once that happens, now we do pursue Christ. But you can't tell the world to start behaving yourself in some way. Start loving God because they hate God. And Jeremiah says this in 13.23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? If you're born to pray, you can't just change it. That's why Arminianism and this whole idea that somehow uh, we can tell lost people to start to repent of your sins and start doing right and start loving the Lord, well, how can they do that when they don't have a heart for it? Quite often, the things in the Old Testament, oh, let me read uh, Titus 3, 5 here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? It puts it in order. Uh, the works... Uh, that, we, that we do before we're uh, regenerated are only evil. It's not until we're regenerated that and renew that we can do any good thing. And quite often, if you think about the Old Testament law, the, uh, the, the things that were considered unclean weren't necessarily unclean in themselves. We know that because, you know, pigs were unclean, but Peter was told by the Lord, don't call, we, we says, eat this ham, he said, and Peter, mm, no, that's, I can't do that. That's against the law. That's unclean. And he said, wait just a minute. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. So there was nothing inherently unclean about pig meat. It was that under the Old Testament law, there were certain things that God said were unclean in order to demonstrate that they were to be separate from the world and they were to, to live as a godly people, right? It was to illustrate true righteousness, true Holiness and clean living. And so he made some things clean and some things not clean in order to teach that we are to forsake those things that dishonor him that are truly unclean, truly dishonoring to the Lord, 
and, and live only to glorify Him. So it was, it was never about rules as such, it was about the heart. Now again, don't, don't say, well, you know, pastor's antinomian. It, it was, it, it, the Lord wants us to be conformed to the image of His dear Son, right? But there's a right way to get there, and there's a wrong way that doesn't get there. And I think a lot of people are confused on that. Uh, Samuel 15, remember this in First Samuel 15, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? And, and of course they can say well wait, offer, offerings and sacrifices is obeying the Lord. It is if it's done for the right reason. If it's done in faith and in thanksgiving to the Lord it's all well and good. But if you're doing it as Saul is doing it and your heart was far from the Lord, you're really doing it in a in disobedience, well, then what's that doing? So to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So again, you see the emphasis on the heart first. Matthew 23, 25 to 28. These people honor me, uh, I didn't quote all that, but these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And of course, we know there's Old Testament texts like that as well. But but what is he saying here? I am not concerned with you going about doing religious things, even in some cases good works, when you're not doing it because you love me. Uh, Matthew fifteen eight and nine. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Matthew fifteen nineteen to twenty. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. Now think about that. It's not that these sins are clean. They they are unclean. But why is he doing those things? Because he's got a bad heart. He can't help it. And so the reverse is true. If we have been given a pure heart, Again, not a perfect heart, but a undivided heart now, a regenerated heart. We now hate every false way, and we start to be able to say no to these things. The power of sin, is, as we say, has been canceled. So they're unclean, but they come out because he has an unclean heart. That's the root problem. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, it's easy. It's easier to follow rules and forget the matter of the heart. We are more careful to keep everything clean to be seen by others and forget about the things that only God sees. You know, when I come to church, for instance, I I would take a, a, a shower and I clean up and I put on a clean shirt because if I don't, well, you're going to look at me and you're, and you're not going to hear anything I'm saying because you're looking at my dirty face or my, you know, ugly shirt and I'm, you know whatever dirty shirt and so I know I better keep myself in a certain presentable way so I don't offend somebody because I don't, I don't want you to, to get distracted from that and so we, it's very easy for us to keep up appearances before men because that's what we see we feel that we, we interact with each other right but we forget, though, and, and that's easy to de-emphasize the fact that, well, okay, fine, but God sees your heart. How much time are you taking care of to to guard your heart? 
and to make sure that it's, it loves the Lord above all else. But see, it's so easy to get, you know, caught up in outward religion and outward things, and we forget that, well, God is more concerned with the heart, or at first concerned with that. And so it's only after we have this principle planted in us, when we are given a new heart, that we can live a pure life. Not pure in perfection, but pure in principles, living for God against, uh, instead of living against him. It has always been a problem to think that holiness can be attained by separating ourselves from the world or from society. And again, you, see, you kind of see the, the connection here. We tend to think that if I kind of cut myself off, off from the world, from society, and just live over here in my little commune or in the monastery, that somehow I'll be holy. Well, the problem is you took your sin nature right in there with you. And holiness isn't, that's not how you get holy. You get holy by falling in love with Jesus Christ and growing in the world, assuming you have a new heart. The problem with sin, let me just, uh, I had this up on the screen, the, the problem with sin is not so much the world around us, but the world that is in us. I don't, I don't think that's too hard to understand. It, it doesn't mean that everything out in the world is okay and that, you know, we, we don't have to guard ourselves from stuff in the world. But the problem is, first of all, in my heart, because a lot of things in this world I won't be tempted with if I love the Lord as I should and if I keep focused on Him. Um, Ezekiel 36.25, let's just read this again with uh, thinking about what we just said. After talking about how that the old covenant has not done anything for the Jews, they've failed at it miserably. They're about to be spewed out of the land. He says, "He says don't give up because something better is coming." Of course, that was always the case. It was always going to be about Jesus anyway. He says, "At that day, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols." Will I cleanse you? And of course, he doesn't mean water. It's, it's a, probably a euphemism more for the Holy Spirit. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put, and again, he's not talking literally, but we're talking about a difference between a hard heart, hard towards God, as opposed to a soft heart that loves the Lord. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, here's the big difference between the old covenant and the new, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Israel couldn't obey. They, they promised at Sinai, all you have said we will do. And God says, if you don't, you're going to die. And if you do, you'll live. And they said, we'll do it. And of course it, if the Old Testament is anything, it's just the abject failure of the natural man to obey God, right? Even when God does mighty works in front of them, they can't, you know, five minutes later, they're off in idolatry. But he says the new covenant, this is why only saved, only the regenerate are in the new covenant, because each one of them have been given a new heart. You've been regenerated so that you now know God. And you now... The, we have the Holy Spirit within us to cause us to be holy, to to live righteously. Something that the old, the natural man cannot do. 
So God never promised in the new covenant that he would remove us from the presence of sinners, but he promised to remove the dominating power of our own sinfulness from our hearts. So what we need is to love God and hate every false way. And separating ourselves from sinners isn't going to change our hearts. Once we think like Christ, it will change the way we see the world around us. That's why we need the spirit of Christ within us and in our hearts to have that new heart. If we hate what Jesus hates, we will forsake those things uh, that dishonor him. And it's not people. It's the, it's sin that dishonors the Lord. So this is why the only thing that will help sinners is the gospel, not government aid, education, certainly not psychology, and so on, because once someone sees God in his glory and their need of him in salvation and have and receive this new heart, um, that they'll take that that they'll be okay. They might still be poor, they might still be uneducated, they might still be oppressed, but they'll be okay. That's what the world needs. Now when we can improve Things for people, that's all well and good. It's kind of what we said in Sunday school, but we got to always make sure we never lose focus that making somebody comfortable in the flesh and not telling them about Jesus Christ is a, the most unloving thing you could do for someone. We were created to fellowship with God and to find our completeness in knowing Him. Um, remember John 17 says, uh, this is true life to know God and and uh, your son that you have sent him. That's kind of a paraphrase, but that was true life to know God, right? That's what we were created to do. And it's and I think it's very telling. And one way maybe to illustrate this is you think about Islam and uh, the, the the everything everybody knows that if you die in jihad, as, as you know, die for the cause of Islam as a martyr of some sort, you will receive is uh, you seventy two virgins when you go to Heaven, right? Or is it seventy-one? I sometimes get those confused. Now, this is the, this this is it exposes why Islam is at its heart a false religion. Allah says the big reward for faithfulness is not me; it's the, you can feed your flesh. And if you read again in Revelation twenty-two, at the culmination of the ages, when we stand before the Lord. The big thing is that we shall see God. Not, not 72 virgins. And I don't know what the, the women, uh, martyrs get. But you see, you see what it is. It's not, it's not about, all of saying, I'm not that great. There's nothing about me, but, but, but the, the true God says, there's no greater glory than the one who created you in all, in all things. It's a fundamental flaw in their religion. And you see in stark contrast to what the true God says. Because there can be no fulfillment in life if one does not know why he has life to begin with. And there can be no answers to the issues of life if you try to find them apart from God. Seeing God begins life. You know, we have physical life, we're born to this world, but it's not until we have a new heart that we... True life begins, because God is true life. So as we sit here with our Bibles open, to again, to make it a little bit more practical, and we see the glories of God, the face of Jesus Christ, what happens? 
Well, he begins to shoulder our burdens. He begins to comfort our sorrows and to guide our way, to calm our anxieties, to become our life and everything. We begin to experience true life in Jesus Christ. And so first, having a pure heart means to live by the rule of God in an undivided way. A life that pleases him. And secondly, having a pure heart means living for the sole purpose of God. He is first in everything. And of course, that should be obvious. And Jesus says this over and over again. You take up your cross and follow me. To have a heart fully devoted to God. So not pure in the sense of morally perfect, but since in, in, pure in the sense of unadulterated. Not, 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 it's not Christ and anything else. If remember that all these Beatitudes are how one will be happy or enjoy a state of joy and blessing, here we understand that you cannot be happy apart from the Lord, seeing Him. And you cannot see God unless He makes you first pure in Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a beatitude that I think all this is uh, somewhat based on, uh, not a beatitude, excuse me, a psalm, Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So I think, you see, Jesus is really referring to this. He's really saying the same thing. James says a very similar thing. It refers, I think, to Psalm 24 as well. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinner. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, again, he's not saying that you that you can regenerate yourself, but as a Christian who these have fallen into sin and division, he says you need to take stock of your heart and see what's there, and if... And if you love the Lord, you need, it, it needs to start coming out in the way you treat one another. This is why Jesus later sums up the essence of law in, is loving God with your entire person. Because it's, it's, it's not about the individual laws. It, it's, it's about doing whatever pleases the Lord. We made this point when it said when it was Paul. Do all things for the glory of God. You want a new covenant version of the law, there it is. If I do all things for the glory of God, I will keep any moral commandment that God would ever have for me. Even though it's, you know, sometimes we need things stated clearly so we can see it, but I need to have a heart that loves God and rest will take care of itself. That, that's New Testament law keeping. Holiness or a pure heart is a principle given and it becomes then a duty to pursue. And so without a desire to be like God, it, it, all your law keeping is a waste. You can't tell someone to please God until they are given a heart to do so. Now you can tell them to do it and they can refrain from murdering and, and do a few things, but they're not, they're not serving the Lord, they're not pleasing Him. This is why Christ could say that only ones, only these shall see God. And the ones who will see God are those who have a pure heart, those who live pure lives. Because you really can't separate the two. Now let's look at some verses I think show some of these things. I, I kind of have these mixed up. I'll explain it here in a moment. But some, some verses old and new that, that bring some of these things out of the same. Hebrews 12, 
14, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Again, so that you see is based on these same principles. Psalm 29, who can say I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. And again, I should have put this with the verses that deal with getting a pure heart as opposed to living out a pure heart. But it's a good question because um, who can say, well, no one can say I have given myself a pure heart, that I cleanse myself from my sin. I need an outward influence, right? Matthew 19, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that you hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. So you see this is what flows from a perfect heart. Psalm 51.10, this, this goes back to how we get the new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me down away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So you see the first where the heart comes from, the pure heart comes from, but then where the how it's worked out in our lives. Titus three fourteen, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So there you see it being worked out. Acts 15.9 And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Of course, talking about the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, thank God, because I'm not a Jew, that, that, that God saves Gentiles as well and saves us all the same way. He gives us a new heart. <clears throat> so those who have a pure heart are those who have seen God and have the hope of seeing God. And we know that from First uh, John uh, three two. I don't think I uh, yeah I did. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So you first have to have this new heart, and now you have a new hope. And you have a new vision, and it motivates me to uh, be pure in life. Uh, someone put uh, here a song, When I in righteousness at last, thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night has passed, and I awake in thee, to view the glories that abide, then and only then will I be satisfied. And I think that again, is looking forward to that day of, of ultimate satisfaction. But can we not say that having seen Christ now in the gospel, as he's regenerated us, we have begun to be satisfied. We've begun to understand, to experience some of this stuff. But we know that the day is coming when it shall be uh, c- complete. So let us be a people who are concerned with pure lives, but not so much outwardly but, uh, and, and not to be someone who is so concerned with looking good and, and what others think about me in the flesh but that people can see Christ in us you know painting the face enhancing the bodies of clay are not going to change people's lives they need to see Christ and to look like Christ is to have a pure heart and a life 
not to look younger, spend a lot of time trying to make yourself look younger or look hip, look like you've got it all together. No, they need to see people who love the Lord. And like with others, this look should have already begun. Uh, I read something here, I thought I'd just read to you, and we're just about done here, but um, I was reading about this uh, guy who was blinded, I think, in World War One, and he fell in love with the nurse and married her. And one day, he was speaking, uh, he was talking to his wife, and he overheard some people nearby saying, it was lucky for her that she, he was blind, since he never would have married such a homely woman if he had eyes. And so he got on his feet, he walked over towards the voices, and he says, I overheard what you said, and I thank God from the depths of my heart for blinding my eyes that might have kept me from seeing the marvelous worth of the soul of this woman, who is my wife. She is the most noble character I've ever known, and if confirmation of her features is such that it might have masked her inward beauty, to my soul, that I am the great gainer by having lost my sight. And I think that's a good illustration of what happens to us, because we're born only able to see this world and see physical beauty, but we, we can't see the real beauty. We don't understand what it's all about. And one day God blinds us to this world and he gives us real insight to, to what true beauty is and what true goodness is. And we now uh, fall in love with Christ and we're no longer infatuated with this world. And the world looks at us and thinks, what? Are you not seeing the same thing I'm seeing? And no. Because we, we see it, but we understand its end. We see its danger. We see its ugliness. That's what having a pure heart is. We're able to see God's glory in the face of Jesus and see how this affects the issues of life. It allows us not to be dazzled by this world and its fading allurements and we see what is truly beautiful. And so I praise the Lord that one day he opened up my eyes that I could see him. And he helps us see sin in this world for what it is. And someday we're, we're promised that we will stand before him with all sin removed and see the essence of beauty, the essence of glory, the essence of satisfaction and joy, the essence of everything. And I hope that he has opened up your hearts to uh, these things as well. So the Christian life is not pie in the sky, it's pie in the hand right now. I, if we live with a pure heart, a life that is morally pleasing to God and are fully devoted to him, we will to that extent, enjoy the presence of God in our life. As Peter said, and with this, uh, just a couple more verses and we're done here. Peter says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an ex inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, there's a sense in which our eyes have been opened to him, but there's a sense in which we haven't even begun to see him. But it's beginning, right? One more illustration. With this, I'm done. And that's over in Job chapter 42. Remember where Job, at the end of the book here, God finally came to him in a whirlwind. And uh, Job was under the impression that if I, you know, live a good life, the Lord kind of owes, owes me, take care of me. And they struggled. He didn't understand why all these things were happening to him. 
And at the end of the book, the Lord comes in a whirlwind. So it's something that he sees and starts saying, you know what, Job? Where were you when I created the world and I did all these things? And Job finally gets it. He says, and when he starts to see himself compared to God, he says, God, whatever you do is right. And forgive me for thinking that you owed me something, right? That's the, that's Job in a couple of sentences. But he says this in, in verse 5 of chapter 42. My eyes have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Well, he hasn't seen God. He's seen a whirlwind, a tornado, whatever. God was, you know, because God, you can't see God at that time in unmitigated uh, circumstances. You have to be shielded. So he saw something, and God was speaking out of that. So I don't think Job is saying that, um, well, now that I see you in that whirlwind, I get everything. But what he is seeing is when God has explained through his word, he has explained who he is and who Job is, Job is saying, now I get it. Now I, now I, now I see what you're talking about. Now I see who you really are. Not with my eyes, but with my understanding. And when we see the glory of Christ, then we begin to get it. Our eyes have been opened. So I hope that we have hearts that love God above all else. That's a way to examine yourself. Not in a perfect sense. But in an instance that in your heart you know that God is your life, that he is more worthy than anything else, and you strive to live a life that pleases him. And those are the ones who someday will see God and not be consumed. And that's what I want to be someday, right? Any questions or comments?